All right, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is someone I've been really excited about having on the air for a while, Kyle Clark. Kyle is the founder and CEO of Beta Technologies. You may have read about it recently. It's an incredibly fast-moving, successful eVTOL company, or in the parlance that we've been talking about on this podcast a lot lately, flying cars. Kyle, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, sir. So I, I kind of want that. that First of all, I'm just going to give a, a totally naked, uh, gratuitous shout out to my friend Jake Goldman, who works for you, um, because that time story was one of the best sort of uh, examples of effective communications I've seen in a really long time. So whatever you guys are doing, it is it's someone, as, as someone who does that part for a living. It's, I have no idea if your technology is real or not, but I know the comms work is really good. You know, what's what's funny about that is is Jake has probably the smallest team in the whole company. We give him no marketing budget whatsoever. And we tell him he's only allowed to talk about stuff we've already done. And, uh, and it actually makes his job pretty easy, um, in my opinion. But I've heard that a few times from people on the outside. Yeah, no, it's uh, ha- having worked with Jake, I'm not surprised. So, Kyle, how, how just for obvious first, I'd recommend that that listeners check out that New York Times story because there's lots of great photos of of the beta craft. Um, but just for those who haven't seen it yet and they're trying to picture this in their head, what should they be thinking about? Yeah, so we're an electric aerospace company, and our first commercial product is an aircraft we call the Leah. It's got a 50-foot wingspan. It has four 12-foot rotors on the top and one rotor in the back. And the way it works is, you know, you put about six people in it. It takes off vertically like a helicopter, all electric. And, and then you turn on the rotor in the back, and you push the aircraft through the air, and as you generate airspeed, you turn off the top rotors about 30 seconds after liftoff. And then you're flying on the wing on a silent motor. You fly to where you're going. And at the other end of the flight, as you come into approach, you can imagine a runway in the sky, but the runway is created by the lift rotors. You turn the lift rotors on really gently to make up for any loss of lift of the wing as you go slower. And you slow the aircraft down to the point that you're only hanging on the lift rotors and you set it down. You never hover, you never dance around. You just make a runway in the sky with these cool lift rotors. The enabling technology behind all of that is super high power density electric motors. They're like a fraction of the weight and the size and the complexity of jet engines or turbines. And we get to put them all over the aircraft. In this case, we put four stations that actually have 16 motors for reliability and redundancy. And, uh, and it allows you to fly from one point, like a 12 foot by 12 foot pad to another point, a 12 foot by 12 foot pad at speeds on average that are almost 10 times faster than the average car going along the road. And, um, and so when you get inside, this is one thing I wanted to mention before about people adopting the technology. So I fly the aircraft a lot. We have other test pilots who fly the aircraft and I brought a lot of customers up into it. And you'd think that like they get into it and they're like, wow, that's neat that it's an electric aircraft. But the visceral reaction is, holy cow, it's quiet. It's calm. The propellers, you know, 20 feet behind us and I can barely hear it. We can have a conversation inside and the visibility is spectacular. And what that's code word for is I get claustrophobic in another kind of airplane. And in this one, I feel free. And like you can hear the wind coming over the windscreen and, and, and it's just it's a beautiful feeling. And like right now I have a tingle in my back because I feel like I've got these wings on my back that I'm just pushing through the air. And that's what it's like when you're flying a glider. And that's what it's like when you're flying our electric aircraft. And so I think the, the hidden gem there is that when people start flying in these airplanes, 
they're not going to have this anxiety due to the noise and the and the and the beating of the propeller and the and the claustrophobic environment of pressurized vessels. It's just a free, open, beautiful way to move. It's really cool. So I want to actually start my first question with a line from that article. And it's not, it's actually not a quote from you. It's from a, a pilot who works for you, Chris Caputo. And what he said is, we're doing some really meaningful work for our state, our country, and the planet. It's hard not to want to be a part of it. Um, I assume you agree with Chris, but if so, why is this meaningful for the state, country, and planet? Well, look, there's, first of all, at the very high level, you know, we, we have people here who really care about climate. They care about doing something meaningful. If you look at all transportation, in fact, all emissions that contribute to climate change, aviation operates in this cognitive dissonance of like, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. So we're just going to be pigs. And, but the reality is there is something we can do about it. And, and so if you look at like the ability to take a, a really efficient current IC engine out of a car and make it electric, you get some returns, but you spread that across millions of cars, the returns are meaningful. In airplanes, the returns are like triple what you would get relative to a car because we have this like bow wave of unconsumed technology um, because aviation is so regulated, you can't consume the technology and drop it in at the rate it's developed. So, you know, it is the most meaningful work we can do if you believe in doing something about climate change. Right. So, so then in the kind of global fight to keep warming at, at 1.5 degrees Celsius, which doesn't seem like it's going to happen, but you know, what scale does eVTOL have to get to, um, to ha for it to be a meaningful, you know, factor in that? Yeah. Um, so, so the way I think about it is a little different. So EV toll is just like breaking in. It's like the Tesla Roadster, right? Yep. It, 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 if it weren't for the Tesla Roadster, we don't know that that FedEx and UPS would be driving electric package cars, trucks, mm -hmm. right? What do they have to do yep. with each other? Well, they started nipping on the heels and saying it's possible to do this, right? So our 7,000 pound aircraft flying 300 miles is not equivalent to a 70,000 pound aircraft flying 3,000 miles. However, it nips on the heel of a 19,000 pound aircraft and then on the heels of a 30,000 pound. And over the next two decades, we keep pushing that performance forward. So what effect does EVTOL or what scale does EVTOL have to get to today? We got to start producing the first certified aircraft. And then in two years, we got to put 500 in the field. Then we got to put 8,000 because the total cargo feeder fleet in the United States is only about 4,000 aircraft, right? That's, but if we replace all those, then then we've done a meaningful dent i would say yeah in that sector but more importantly we put the next sector on notice that we're coming yeah and that's i was i was wondering which and the answer just might be both but which do you think is sort of the more likely and important outcome of all of this assuming it succeeds one would be changes in the way that people travel changes in accessibility to different types of areas that are harder to serve right now or um, basically pushing the, the bigger parts of the industry towards change simply because they have no choice. Um, so, so both, and, and, and I don't mean to be flip about the answer, but changing the industry defines the industry, right? But what's happening in electric aviation, because we, let's say we, we have the cost of carriage and it's a sustainable solution, you can actually expand the industry drastically. And it's like, it's like asking somebody when cell phones were coming along, what do you think makes a bigger difference? 
the fact that you can talk to somebody everywhere or the fact that um, that you no longer need a landline and like, hold on, you missed the whole point. We've got this device that's digital and we can have data that streams with all kinds of different forms. So now that we've basically uncorked the vertical dimension of our world, we're not just expanding an existing industry. You you have all these unknown, um, sorry, we got airplanes starting up all around that, here. That just makes stuff. it feel more authentic. Then <laughs> the audience won't think they were just making this all up. Yeah, it, you, you, you've accessed now the Z dimension of the, of the world. The applications are incredibly broad. We're gonna be displacing trucks, displacing jet aircraft. And, um, and yes, we're gonna be accessing rural places at a higher rate, almost like the physical manifestation of the data world that we just kind of uncorked over the last couple of decades. But also, we're going to be replacing the aircraft right now that are that are incredibly polluting. So for people listening to this in, I don't know, 10 years, 20 years, whatever it is, what are the ways that their life differs, if at all, on a day to day basis, because the vision that you just outlined actually happens? So first of all, the access to goods increases to people like in Vermont, like we don't have prime same day or even second day stuff up here, right? Um, we will have that because we've lowered the cost of carriage to the point that it actually works for folks like us. So our life will change drastically. It already has quite a bit with 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 technologies like the internet here. But th that's one. The second is like, we're going to see, and, and there's this fear of like turning the skies black with flying cars. That's not gonna happen, right? It, it, there, there's gonna be a very, very high rate of increase of, in our case, Aaliyah aircraft doing normal work. It's no longer gonna be this like super exclusive, hard to get to thing of having express cargo moving around. It's just gonna be normal work to be moving things back and forth across the, uh, uh, across the country um, because the cost is so low. So what are we going to physically see? We're just going to see more efficient work, more efficient lives. And, uh, and it's because we've uncorked this, this extra dimension of transportation. So, so Kyle, you just described, I think, the, mainly the cargo commercial version of this. Um, you know, people still think back to the Jetsons of, am I going to hop in my personal flying car and fly to work and, and sort of not have all the misery of you know, driving on a packed highway or cramming into a crowded subway or whatever it is. Is that in the cards or is, is that not really where this is going to go? Yeah, it, it is absolutely in the cards that people's lives will train, will change substantially. And I think that the work of the future will still require some in-person time, right? I don't think people are going to be commuting daily in and out of the city on a flying car, which I think is going to happen is that our, our digital presence will be sufficient for 50% of our work and our physical presence will be sufficient for 50% of our work. And two or three days a week, you're, you're gonna commute into a place where other people are um, at, at 60 or 100 miles. And it's gonna be a non-factor because it's gonna be 35 minutes. Um, and, and you're not gonna be sitting in traffic. Things are gonna be moving and flowing and at a very high cadence and uh, and so, yes, people's personal lives will change. But back to your earlier comment or question, for our strategy as a business, I believe that there are so many impediments to making that happen. What I just described as the 50% digital, 50% in presence yep. and flown to work, um, that, that we have to hit the big 
the big hairy challenges between here and there, and we can do it most easily in cargo, medical, and logistics. And that's going to happen over the next five to eight years. And then the passenger stuff is going to take off. So what are the things to get in the next five to eight years from your prediction and view to reality? What has to happen? Municipalities have to start to adopt this as 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 a need and a normal thing. Yeah. Like, look, I, 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 I see it very personally that when people say, when you say we're going to fly over your head, people lose their mind. They're like, oh, my God. But if you say I'm going to I'm going to drive by your house. Um, 100 feet away, people are somehow comfortable with that. So there's this like change management or this overcome of human mental inertia to say, we're going to fly into the cities, we're going to fly into the country, right? Guess what? It's not a big deal. In fact, it's just the same as driving by your house on a public road. And I think the way to get there is people need to start to see benefit for themselves. They can't see there's a thing for the entitled. and I think the, the way to get there is through something that everybody uses, which is express cargo and logistics. I, I think agreeing with you, you know, what I saw with Uber especially is if you can give people a much better way of doing something, um, they will both accept it and advocate for it very quickly. Right. So sort of big normative changes, whether it's how people getting in the back of a stranger's car or sleeping on the back of a stranger's couch or telemedicine, right? The entire healthcare. Now people are willing to to get lots of their healthcare online instead of going to see the doctor. In all of those cases, they saw the value proposition and because it worked, they were willing to A, accept it and adopt it and B, politically often fight for it, right? And so I think that to your point, as long as you guys can A, has to be safe and then B, show people your life is tangibly better as a result of this thing, then that is, you know, how you get them. And in my experience, it actually can move pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, what's funny about this is, is I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm, you're offering a new perspective on how to think about this. I I would have said it differently, but the way you said it is actually quite elegant. So I'm going to steal that from you because it actually works really well. And it's like this two-step process of, of, of getting people to stop advocating against you and then kind of jujitsu it and turn it right around and say, look, it's beneficial for you in this way. And by the way, um, it just logically makes sense. And and you get to the point where people are like, wow, it's good for the environment. It's it, it helps me out. Um, I don't really have a lot to stand on. Right. And but it can't happen in one big change. All of a sudden, you can't just like pull the rug out on something they understand and put it in. And. And at the community level, if you try and start this industry by having a very high priced, immediately going from Hoboken to Manhattan air taxi, then it probably will fail because it'll run headlong into that friction. Yep. But if we show benefit, like in our, our, our strategy is let's show benefit through UPS. Let's start making it so that it's less expensive to get stuff sooner. And you do it with a quiet, clean aircraft and they're going to, you know, make sure people understand that that's the way their packages are delivered. And then people say, well, the obvious next question, man, is why can't I get on that when I'm going on my old little trip? Right. And all of a sudden it's not for somebody else. And yeah. And one piece of political advice and, and not telling anything Jake doesn't already know, but so the people who show up and complain at community board meetings, the people who typically vote like in city council primaries, there, some of them are always going to be a problem, right? Because there are people who are only happy when they're miserable, right? And they, they live in the world of NIMBY, 
Um, these are the same people who complain about there not being enough affordable housing and then blocking it at every single conceivable turn. <laughs> so the trick is, in, in my experience, uh, being able to both demonstrate this to other people who may not be politically active but certainly live in that jurisdiction and could vote if they wanted to, and then mobilizing them so they're telling their city council person, no, I want this thing, right? So you got to change. If you assume that every politician is just going to do whatever they think is best for their next election, if the only people who vote in their primary are people who are complaining about eVTOL, then they'll be against it, right? But all of a sudden you show them, hey, there are thousands of people in your district who actually really like this thing. Maybe they're not that politically active, but do you really want to wake them up and piss them off? Um, and then things change. Like That's how we legalize FanDuel. Um, you know, we would just meet with a state rep in, I don't know, Kentucky or whatever, and say, look, you have 3,412 FanDuel and DraftKings customers in your district. Let's be honest. They don't know who you are. They probably don't even know what a state rep is, but they love fantasy sports betting. And if you take it away from them, we're going to make sure they're all registered to vote, and they're all going to now know your name, and they're all going to come out to vote against you, and you're going to lose your next election. And yeah. pretty much every politician in the country reached the same conclusion was like, I don't need that headache. Fine. And we yeah. won everywhere, right? So I think you, you're going to have, because there, there's so many good examples of it already, the ability to reach and mobilize people. Um, you just have to, A, deliver on the value proposition, and B, um, recognize that you can't play the game that's always being played because try, spending all of your resources to win over some people who are just going to be skeptics no matter what isn't worth it. It's finding all the people who think this is really fucking cool um, and and putting them in the game instead. Yeah, no, it, it, it's all, all that's also, I think, a good insightful way to look at it. You know, translating that to our precise strategy here, we have an aircraft that is fit for doing medical and cargo missions mm -hmm. day one. And and those things, it's you're going to if hard pressed to find somebody who's going to stand up in front of the city council and say that quiet electric aircraft that's delivering lungs and hearts and blood products to people in need right i'm really against that yeah that's why zipline has has been successful so far politically yeah, yeah i mean keller's done a phenomenal job both doing that but also like finding a regulatory environment in order to break into that's a whole nother conversation to have but the um walking into that in that way and then it becomes like not this boogeyman idea of helicopters over everybody's head it's that thing that i have to look up to notice and it's going to the hospital and then, it, then I look up and notice it's going to an industrial park and, and it's probably bringing something to me. And then I ask the question, say, damn, like I'm sick of driving to <clears throat> from Manchester to Boston or wherever that like just beyond palatable hour, hour and a half long trip. And I want to do it in 15 minutes comes. And I think it's this stepwise progression where people, and I really like your description of pulling it Having making making so people find value and they start pulling for you, yep. right? And and that's insightful. You know the the interesting the other interesting thing is, and I've thought about this a lot, is aviation evokes this like fear in a lot of people. It's it's this idea that if I crash, something terrible is going to happen. It's going to be catastrophic. Yeah. I can get a fender bender. You know, there's been in commercial aviation, I think two or three fatal accidents in seven years in the United States. Right. Two or three. We have 40,000 deaths per year. Totally. The other day I was on a plane with someone and they were like getting a little nervous. They said, we just finished the scary part, which was driving to the airport. So now we're fine. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. And like, and, and by the way, the number of seat miles that go in airlines versus cars is one sixth. So, 
so it's not even like it's it's within the same order of magnitude of total pasture miles yet it is four orders of magnitude different in safety right so it's like it's thousands of times different safer in the air so let me ask you so one of the things when you just outlined in your mind you kind of thinking out loud okay what's the value proposition that is demonstrated to people to then turn them into supporters and advocates you mentioned sort of them receiving a physical product in some way um, through all of this. So tell me how you think about delivery drones. How do they fit into this? And are they, like, as you're planning this all out, are they an active part of the equation or are they just kind of happening at their own timeline independent of you? Yeah, I, I think that they are uh, related, but they are not codependent or necessary to enable electric aircraft and electric aerospace. Um, and even though they fly, they really occupy a different part of the value chain of that final mile stuff. You know, most of the stuff that we order online comes from like regional distribution centers that are a few hundred miles away, unless you live right next to one of them. And it's beyond the range, the passable range of a drone, but it doesn't need to go on a big old jet. So we sit in that sweet spot between, between like 500 miles and five miles. We're not doing the last five miles. There, there's infrastructure in place to do that. And I'm not saying it's perfect. It can be improved as well. But that's not what what we're doing, right? Could you guys though bring through your through your jet products to individual people, or is that not cost effective? I mean, it wouldn't be cost effective. You yeah. would, you know, because we're carrying around several thousand pounds of stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's like you know, you you would you would land within a couple miles of where that distribution has to happen. You land in a parking garage and it gets distributed to the local community, or you land. Um, in this case, at a distribution center for UPS, and they already have their ground vehicles that would then go distribute it out to uh, out to the community. Right. Um, how are you guys thinking about vertiports and all of the infrastructure that's going to be needed? It seems to me that, from what I can tell, your industry has done a really good job, as they should, thinking through all of the FAA certifications and rules and everything else, and that's one obviously key step. But in order for this to actually really exist in people's lives and deliver the kind of value we've been talking about, um, there has to be places where the vehicles can take off and land that are somewhat near population centers. Um, so kind of ha- the municipal politics, the zoning, the permitting, obviously, as you know, I just wrote an absurd <laughs> novel about all of this, but I think that, you know, it, it's going to in real life happen in some way. So um, what's, what's the game plan for that? Yeah, so it's interesting. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna show you something super quick out the window yep. here. You see that big old vertiport right there? Yep. So there's that's a 50 by 50 de-iced, uh, full power over a megawatt of power for recharging in that vertiport, right? And that thing is semi-modular, and it can be put up and taken down in about eight days. And and so the the product exists, but you hit on the most important thing, which is municipal zoning. So the problem right now is the when, when, as soon as something goes into the air, it's preempted and regulated by the feds, by the FAA, yep. right? But when the wheels are on the ground, it's regulated by the municipality. Yep. Now, one of the big problems here from a business perspective is that those municipal rules are all different, right? Yep. And and some of them are permissive, some of them are restrictive, some of them have pre-existing you know, baselines and they relate this to helicopters. Others are silent and they need to make new rules. So what in my opinion needs to happen to answer your question is that just like with airports the the feds need to step in and say here's a safe and proper way to install a vertiport 
And when they do that, um, the cities all of a sudden have guidance and they have, they have a way to not invent a new rule. And it gives the business ability to make something that is conforming with that guidance. And, and that's a tough thing to do, right? Um, it's a tough thing for, to, to negotiate those new rules about what safety means in a new paradigm of aviation. Yeah. I mean, I think definitely having sort of an industry standard of, you know, if a vertiport can meet these 15 conditions, you know, we, the FAA, believe that it is completely safe. Um, it is a really important validation. Um, it's interesting on the federal rule part because, for example, like we're investors in Kodiak, it's an autonomous trucking company, and they're doing really well. But one of the ways in which they and that entire sector is a little hamstrung is that USDOT has yet to issue any rules on interstate uh, autonomous trucking. Um, and, and it's funny, in a weird way, you guys, I think, and, and drones also are the beneficiary of being in a white space where there's not really an entrenched interest that you're disrupting so much, right? So one of the problems that the autonomous trucks have is Trump and now Biden both consider themselves Teamsters guys, right? And as a result, the Teamsters are, even though they really shouldn't be, because if you look at the number of trucking shortages, jobs, and everything else, the, the math doesn't even make sense. But, but if you, their argument is that it's, it's bad for them, so they've been able to block it. One good thing is you guys haven't really had the equivalent of that um, on the federal level blocking. And as a result, the FAA, at least for regulator, in my view, has been pretty progressive and, and pretty forward thinking in a lot of this stuff. Do you agree? Uh, to an extent. I mean, um, we, we, we always wish that the regulators were moving quicker, but I'd say the FAA has done their job as in focusing on safety, taking things cautiously. They have issued draft. So I guess we're one step ahead of the autonomous trucking world, um, draft rules around uh, vertiports. Yep. You know, one of the things we independently did as an industry, actually, one of the guys from Beta chairs the um, committee on this is charging standards, right? Yep. So so that whoever lands at that vertiport no longer is it a proprietary thing. Um, everybody's charging with the same data protocol, the same vehicle identification, of course, the same connector and both. And, and that's like a step in that direction. That was industry driven. It was FAA driven. And frankly, like I would, I would venture to say that the industry, we want the same thing as the FAA, right? We want a safe and reliable product. Right. The FAA wants a safe and reliable product. And if we, if we operate from that mindset, just like the, the autonomous trucking industry, the companies building those and the companies operating them, they don't want an unsafe product. No. They don't want, yeah. they don't want a product that they lose their material. Everybody with. needs some level of regulatory structure and certainty. Right. And, and so we're all on the same team. Um, I think that that there's a gap in expertise just for the obvious reason that this industry has never existed before, right? Yeah. Um, my only kind of ask is that regulars look at people like me and say, damn, like they actually are directly aligned with us and they happen to have thousands of hours of flying these types of vehicles. And there's a very they, small they will, amount. They will do that if there's not a political impediment to them doing so, mm. right? They're not going to look at you as a aligned party or a human being or anything else if there's some other interest that is more powerful than you politically that is telling them not to. And that could be big donors to the governor or the president, or it could be often the phrase regulatory capture, which is it's sort of like Stockholm syndrome. The regulators end up protecting the people they're supposed to be regulating from new competition. Right. Um, but but the nice thing, again, in your in your area is there aren't as many entrenched interests that you're disrupting. So that actually creates some, yeah. some, a little more room to work. The other thing just to think about, and, and I'm sure this is now getting way too granular for any of the listeners to enjoy, but um, state pre so federal preemption 
still pretty worth worth pursuing, but tough. Individual state preemptions that you're not dealing with every municipality, at least in some places, definitely more achievable. Um, and then on top of that, if you have uh, even if you have state preemption, if you have state rules, you can avoid some of the local zoning and permitting fights if you can place the vertiports on state-owned land and property. Yeah, no, that's um, it's so a great insight. And that kind of gets you around it a little bit. So there, there's a bunch of stuff we should yeah. talk about it. But from from a urban standpoint, from an urban passenger standpoint, and this may not be anything you've been wondering about, but I've been wondering about this for a while, which is let's accept that your vision is implemented and people can do a 60-mile trip in 35 minutes. As a result, they can live anywhere, right? It doesn't really matter anymore. And so the question is that I've been wondering, what will people choose, right? Because on one hand, you could say, well, if I can get to work when I need to be there in a reasonable amount of time anyway, why don't I have a bigger house and more land and spend less money and all of that, which would argue people will move to suburbs and exurbs, even rural areas more. And then there's the other argument, which is people seem to like to be with other people, right? And there's sort of this human condition. And one reason why cities often work is people kind of, even if they complain about it, kind of do like living on top of each other and do like kind of all of the interaction and connection. And so I've been struggling to figure out kind of which, which sentiment, human sentiment kind of wins out in that situation. Do you have a guess? Um, well, I personally, I think it's a balance. I chose the former of those. I live about 40 miles south of town here and and was able to have, you know, more property, more space and whatever. But I like collaborating with people in engineering. So I come to work every day. Right. It's I'm, I'm on one end of the spectrum. Um, there are absolutely people that like to live with their headboard or their bed next to the next person so that when they walk outside, they always have somebody to say hi to. That's Except in New York, we don't, we don't say hi to strangers. What's or, that? Or, na- or neighbors. But yeah. Yeah. So, so look, I, I think that, that um, given the choice, um, people will find what fits them. And, and inevitably, we have a diversity of thinking around all humans. And frankly, I think it's going to be back to that 50-50. You're going to see people that are going to commute into the city for three or four days a week, and they're going to live in the country for the time that, that is comfortable for them to do that, three or four days a week. They can digitally commute. And, and again, I'm not proposing that people fly in and out every day. Of course, some people would. But if you reduce that friction, you, you end up with the ability for people to do that. And for, you know, probably the, the cost of, are you in San Francisco or are you in New York? New York. The cost of a flat in New York, you could have 100 acres in Vermont. And, and you could go out and enjoy nature and, and, and you know, make a, a net zero house that whatever these dreams that, and you can kind of have both. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I actually think that that we can't just pick a particular um, case study and say that's how people like it. Um, and the other interesting thing is, is that as people grow, you can't deny that that as people grow up as humans and get through different phases of their life, they appreciate different things. So I, I think that like people that, that get past that phase of I need this community around me all the time. I'm comfortable with the pieces of people that I've chosen to live my life with, whether it's their spouse or their kids or whatever, that's what I want. Then they start to trend out of that need to be in cities. Yeah. Um, one last urban planning question, then, uh, which is, so everything you just said makes sense to me until we get into sort of, like you said, the inner city core where, you know, 
you're not really going to have a lot of eVTOL and things like that. And we have just these super congested cities where the streets are relatively narrow and small. Truck traffic, especially because the popularity of delivery has gone up so much, is exponentially higher. Um, building new mass transit is prohibitively expensive in most cases. How do you solve that problem? Or is this just like if you choose to live in a city like New York or Chicago, whatever it is, like this is just part of the deal? <laughs> I don't think it's just part of the deal. I think that back to the Z dimension, and I know this sounds so simple, but the tops of all those buildings are totally accessible, right? And if you had a quiet, clean, sustainable solution to say, I'm going to take 50% of that traffic off the road. And I'm just going to land on the rooftop. It's there. I don't need the whole rooftop, by the way. I need about 12 feet by 12 feet. I'm just going to land there and I'm going to deliver what's necessary for that building or that small block right there. It is totally digitally feasible to do that from an air traffic management, from a safety standpoint, all of those things. And you take half the traffic off the road, right? You're, you're not the, the stuff where people are driving three or four blocks. Of course, you're not taking it off. But it would be an interesting study, actually, to to have either, you know, a volunteer or just a forced participation of a city mobility study to say, where are all these cars coming from and going? Right. Yeah. And then it could help answer your question. What congestion would you relieve by saying that anything that's coming from more than 30 miles out? You must you know that, you know, the European thing where they're saying, hey, if you can go by train, you're not allowed to fly by jet. Um, so what if you flip that on its head and said, look, if, if it's more than 30 miles, you're not allowed to use the road, you got to fly it in. Yeah. You fly it in over top. And, and all of a sudden, like, you know, you, you, and maybe you even have blocks of time when nobody's, you know, really worried about flying in. Right. It's, it's between 10 AM and 2 PM and everything comes and goes then. And then people have their 5 PM peaceful time. Right. Totally. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what the data is like uh, scooters. We were investors in, in bird, um, it's not enough data yet to really draw any conclusions, but at some point in cities like Austin or Chicago or DC, where people do seem to really use electric scooters, like what has the impact been on car travel? Is there a reduction? And if there is, that's a meaningful learning, you know? Well, the, the interesting paradigm shift with, with aviation, and I've flown my helicopter into New York numerous times, landed on all the helipads. It is a archaic process of communication between these different people in the air or pilots um, to deconflict each other and to manage this. And it's loud and it's annoying and you have very restricted places you can go to. Um, all that is super solvable. It's super solvable. But the, the real question is how do we get there, right? We know the end game, um, but we don't know the steps to get there because as we were talking about a minute ago, it's a change management problem. It's how do you, how do you, how do you go from here to there, whether with air traffic control, safety or public acceptance. Yeah, hopefully it'll uh, hopefully it'll work. So, uh, Kyle, how do people learn more about Beta? How do they follow what you're up to? How do they how do they keep in touch? Yeah, I mean, so our we're, we're Beta Technologies. Our website is beta .team. Um, We have a like a marketing policy that we only talk about stuff we've already done. So we have a team led by Jake Goldman here who releases videos and images and talks about our flight test successes. We're flying all over the country. Um, and, uh, and we'd love to, you know, engage people. Oh, one other really cool thing. This is like for, for people who are a little bit beyond curious and are a little nerdy, like myself, um, the most used flight simulator in the world, it's called X plane 12. It just launched and it included our airplane in the base package. So people get to go and fly it on your laptop in this beautiful visual environment 
Um, and like you can put it 3D glass, 3D uh, headset on, or you uh, you can just fly it on your laptop and check stuff out. It's really cool. It's X Plane 12. Well, that's cool. All right, my son and I do that this weekend, so that's uh, that's perfect. So, Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. This was great. Cool. Thanks, man. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Netware, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.